James Sidlow Baxter said it's Paul's magnum opus. Frederick Godet called Romans the cathedral of the Christian faith. One of the greatest of the church fathers, Chrysostom, had it read to him twice a week. Samuel Coolidge called it the most profound writing that exists. And James Montgomery Boyce calls it the most influential document ever penned. I have over 30 books in my library on Romans. You can't say enough about this book. It has influenced millions of people and changed the course of history. This is a life-changing letter. In the fourth century, a distinguished philosopher and teacher named Aurelius Augustine was under conviction concerning the truth of Christianity. He was both a very brilliant man and a very attractive man. But as was true of many of the intellectuals of that day, he was held in the grip of an immoral lifestyle. He knew that what he was doing was wrong, but he was powerless to quit. One day he was in the garden of a friend's estate near Milan, Italy, and he heard a child singing the words, take and read, take and read, take and read. He was not aware of any song like that, and so he took that as a message from God. He rushed to a copy of the Bible that was lying nearby. He opened it at random, and he began to read the first words that met his gaze. They were Romans 13, 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Afterwards, he wrote this. Instantly, as the sentence ended, a light of security infused into my heart and all the gloom of doubt was vanished away. And you can read the details in his book, The Confessions of St. Augustine. He went on to become one of the most influential figures in the history of the church. In the 16th century, there was a sincere monk who was attempting to live as pious a life as he could. He wanted more than anything else to be pleasing in the eyes of God. But he found that the more he tried to please God, the more distant he felt. He had no peace, no joy, no contentment. In fact, he finally came to the conclusion that God had required an impossible standard of righteousness for people to achieve. And for that reason, he actually found himself hating God. And then one day, he was reading Romans, and his eyes fell on Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And nothing would ever be the same in Martin Luther's life after that moment. He realized that the righteousness that he was seeking could not be attained by works. It could only be received by faith. And his understanding of the book of Romans led to that trademark phrase, faith alone. And not only was Martin Luther's life changed, but he went on to become the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Many years later, John Wesley became a minister, and he went as a missionary to the Indians in America. But he wrote this in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And then one night he was reluctantly at a meeting at Aldersgate Street 
and he listened to a man read the preface from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And this is what he wrote in his journal. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He was powerfully changed, and out of his ministry came the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century, a revival that literally changed the course of European history. This is a life-changing letter. And as I face the task of teaching it, I feel both a sense of anticipation and intimidation. I feel sort of like I'm standing at the base of Mount Everest. And on one hand, I feel overwhelmed by the grandeur of it. On the other hand, I feel a strange attraction to the challenge of scaling it step by step with the help of God. And my greatest anticipation is this. If you will stick with this study from start to finish, you say, yeah, if I live that long. If you stick with this study from start to finish and you begin to get the basics of this book into your bloodstream, you will never be the same. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, God has always used this book to renew and refresh and revitalize the church. This is a life-changing letter. Now, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, I think you would want to gather as much information ahead of time as you could. You would want to look at a map and see some of the contours. You would even like to fly over and get an aerial view of what you were going to climb. I would like to do that this morning. I'd like to look at a map of the book of Romans. I would like to take a couple flights over the book and then I'd just like to take one step into the first verse of this great book. First of all, I want us to look at a map to answer some basic questions about the book. Those questions are, who wrote it? Who's it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? What's the message? First of all, who wrote it? It's right there in verse 1, Paul. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and God had uniquely prepared him for that calling. If you'll remember, religiously, he was a Hebrew. He was trained under the respected rabbi Gamaliel. He was a member of the very strictest sect of the Jews, a Pharisee. Religiously, he was a Hebrew, but culturally, he was a Greek. He was born and raised in the city of Tarsus, which was a seaport on the coast of Turkey. And Tarsus was one of the, one of the places where they had the th one of the three most prominent universities in the Roman Empire. Many assume that Paul got a secular education there, which might explain to us why he can quote Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17. So he had both a Greek and a Jewish education. Politically, he was a Roman citizen. Now, only about one out of five people who lived in the Roman Empire were actually Roman citizens. And the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen gave him the privilege to travel unhindered throughout the known world. And so Paul was perfectly equipped to be the first international minister of the gospel. Second, to whom was it written? Slide down to verse 7. It says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. This is a letter to the church at Rome. Now, we don't know how the church at Rome got started. We do know 
that Paul didn't start it. Because in chapter 15 and verse 20, he tells us that another man laid the foundation of this church. In fact, Paul had never even been to the church at Rome. Chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, Perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Now, we do know that the church at Rome was a church that was made up predominantly of Gentiles. Look at chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. Among whom? Among the Gentiles. Look at chapter 1 and verse 13. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And in chapter 11 and verse 13, Paul comes out and says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. So this is a letter from the apostle to the Gentiles to the Gentiles in the central city of the Gentile world. Third, when was it written? Well, in chapter 15 and verse 25, Paul says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Now, you remember that Paul went on three missionary journeys. On the third missionary journey, he took up the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So that tells us that at this time, he's on his third missionary journey because he's going to Jerusalem taking the offering to those poor saints. Now, during that third missionary journey, he spent three months at Corinth. And that's probably where, in the year of 58 A.D., he wrote this letter. Because when we get to chapter 16, and he sends greetings from several people, he sends greetings from a man by the name of Gaius, who was one of the first people saved in Corinth, and he sends greetings from another man named Erastus that we know was also at Corinth. And in chapter 16, in verse 1, he tells us that a lady by the name of Phoebe was going to deliver the letter. And Phoebe was from the city of Sincrea, which is really the seaport of Corinth, only seven miles away. Now, why was it written? Well, Romans chapter 15 and verse 23 tells us that Paul had been trying to get to Rome for many years. Why was he trying to get there? Well, he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 15, he was eager to come there in order to preach the gospel. He tells us in chapter 1 and verse 11, he longed to come there that he might establish them in the faith. And he tells us in chapter 15 and verse 24 that he wanted to use them as a springboard to get to other Gentile territories such as Spain. But since chapter 15 and verse 24 says, now I am going to Jerusalem, he sits down and he writes this letter. And what is the message of this letter? Well, the message of this letter is what he wanted to do if he had come there. It encompasses what he wanted to say to them if he could have come at that moment, and that is the gospel. The word gospel is used six times in the introduction alone. And the theme of this whole book is the good news of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Of all the books in the New Testament, Romans is the comprehensive treatise of the gospel. It is the basic handbook for Christianity. Now, we've looked at the map. Let's take a flight over it. Now, I want you to assume, first of all, we're going to take a flight in a commercial airliner. We're on a 747, and we've got a window seat. 
So I want, you to sh I want to show you an outline of Romans from a high altitude. Can't make out a whole lot from the book from this altitude, but we can tell there are two parts. The first part is chapter 1 to 11. That's the doctrinal part. And the second part is chapter 12 to 16. That's the practical part. Paul teaches us truth, and then he gets to chapter 12. And you remember what chapter 12 says, verse 1? It says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He gives 11 chapters of teaching on the truth of the gospel. Then he gets to chapter 12, and he begins the practical section of the book. Two parts. Now, secondly, I want you to take a flight over with me in a crop duster. We're a little lower. Get a little more of the detail. We see a little more of the contours of the land. Uh, I looked at several outlines for this book. I was tempted by several that were alliterations, very cleverly done. But they just didn't satisfy me. So I've got one that's not an alliteration because I think it's more accurate. And it is this. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is the introduction. Now, now let me back up. The, the, the theme of the book is chapter 3 and verse 28, and that is that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's the whole message. We're justified. Salvation is by faith alone. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is the introduction, and there he tells us that the gospel is real. And the key verse is verse 16, where he says the gospel is the power of God. It's real. Second section, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, he tells us it's necessary. And he underlines that by telling us that the Jews need it and the Gentiles need it. He tells us in chapter 3 and verse, 20, or verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. And he tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's necessary. Thirdly, it's scriptural. Chapter 4, Paul describes the Old Testament situation of Abraham. And he shows us that this is God's way of working because Abraham was justified by faith. And there he tells us that fa his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's scriptural. And then fourthly, he tells us it's effective in chapters 5 to 8. In chapter 5, we begin with these words, having therefore, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He tells us it's effective. In chapter 5, he tells us it gives us peace. In chapter 6, he tells us it gives us freedom from sin. In chapter 7, he tells us it gives us freedom from the law. In chapter 8, he tells us it gives us victory over everything that has been, is now, or ever will be. He tells us that we overwhelmingly conquer through him. And then the fifth section is chapters 9 to 11, and there he tells us that it is historical. Salvation is not something new. And in these chapters, Paul shows us that God has always operated this way, that his promises have always applied not to unbelieving Israel, but always to the believing remnant. So salvation is by faith, it was by faith, and it always will be by faith. And then the final section is chapters 12 to 16, and that tells us it's practical. The gospel enables me to properly relate to God to my brothers, to strangers, to my enemies, to the weak, to the strong, to whoever. It's practical. Now, having gathered some information, let's come down and begin to walk through this great book. The first 17 verses form an introduction, and this is the longest introduction that Paul gives in any of his books. 
And I think the reason is because he has never met these people in Rome. He only knows a few of them. And so he takes the time to introduce himself at the beginning. And we can divide the introduction into four parts, four things about Paul, the man, the message, the ministry, and the motive. This morning, I want, I want us to simply look at the man in verse 1. Now, most visiting preachers get introduced. But in this case, Paul introduces himself. And he does so in four phrases in verse 1. Notice, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, what I find interesting in that verse is not only what Paul chooses to say, but what he doesn't choose to say. He doesn't mention his credentials, his achievements. He doesn't mention his alma mater. He doesn't mention how many books he's written. He simply tells them who he is in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you were going to go to a church where you had never been before and they didn't know you, how would you describe yourself? If you had to describe yourself in 20 words or less, what would be your identity? You know, you go into Kmart, and you're walking around in Kmart, and that voice comes up over the public address system and says, attention Kmart shoppers, we have our Rolex watches on half price in aisle three. Now, you probably think, I've already got several Rolex watches. But what you fail to notice is that lady just called you a name. She called you shopper. Now, is that who you are? I mean, when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, do you see a shopper looking back at you? You turn on the TV, you're going to watch the ball game. What do they say? Hey, sports fans. What they're really thinking is, hey, couch potatoes. <laughs> is that who you are? Is that your identity? One of the first questions people ask us when they meet us is, what do you do for a living? And oftentimes we're identified that way. A doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, a teacher. But is that who you really are? How would you describe yourself? You see, how we see ourselves is important because how we see ourselves will determine how we live. Most people either live up to or live down to their own understanding of who they are. In the movie Hook, Robin Williams plays Peter Pan, who has grown up. And in the process of growing up, he lost the memory of his real identity and of his adventures in Neverland. Now he's married, he's got children. He has become Peter Banning, a busy executive who has more interest in his cell phone than in his kids. When he and his family return to England to visit Granny Wendy, something horrible happens. Captain Hook secretly steals Peter's children and takes them back to Neverland. Well, Granny Wendy attempts to explain to Peter Banning that he should fly away to Neverland and rescue his children, and he just looks at her with a puzzled look. Fly away to Neverland? How could he do that? What is she talking about? And then she leans over to him, looks him in the eye, and whispers, Peter, dear, don't you know who you are? Now, that's a great line because that was the key to everything. What Peter needed was to know his real identity. And you see, once he knew who he really was, then he knew how he should act. And I would suggest to you that that's the problem with many 
Christians. They don't know who they are, and so they act like someone else. We need to know who we are in Jesus Christ so that we can begin to act like the person God has made us to be. You know, one of the things that's very clear about Paul is that he knew who he was. And that's very evident in verse 1. He tells us four things about himself in this verse. His name, his status, his calling, and his passion. First of all, his name, verse 1, Paul. Now, I have to think that every time he wrote down his name in a letter, he had to have an instantaneous flashback. I used to be Saul. Saul, the religious, self-righteous, legalistic, arrogant, self-assured Christian killer. I used to be Saul, the one who would have been voted the least likely on the face of the planet to ever follow Jesus Christ. I used to be Saul, who was on my way to Damascus to kill Christians when miraculously Jesus Christ appeared to me and changed my life. And I now have a new name, Paul. You know, in many countries still today, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they change their name. That's true in India. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they change their Hindu name to a Christian name, and often at their baptism, they will announce, from now on, his name will be Samuel or Joshua or John, a constant reminder of a changed life. And so it was with Paul. He had a new name. I cut an article out in the newspaper about a man who was going to trial for selling heroin, and he petitioned the New York State Court for a temporary name change. His name was Archie Outlaw, and he thought that name might prejudice him in the eyes of the court. So he gave a list of names that he would find acceptable. Archie Law, Archie Law Abiding, <laughs> Reggie Jackson, this is New York City, Eleanor Roosevelt, Sterling Johnson Jr., the name of the prosecutor, or Robert N. Half, the name of the judge. You see, he thought a name change might hide his identity. In Paul's case, a name change revealed his identity. He was Saul. Saul would have written you a letter on salvation by works. He was now Paul, and he writes this profound letter on salvation by faith. First of all, his name. The second way he describes himself is his status. Verse 1, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting to me that as Paul describes himself, he thinks of bondservant before apostle. I'm a bondservant. You know, when Paul was knocked to the ground and blinded by the light on the Damascus road, the first words he said were, Who art thou, Lord? And when the response came back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, you know what the very next words out of his mouth were? What shall I do, Lord? Instantaneous, utter surrender to the will of the Lord. Now, I find it instructive that although Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you bondservants, but I call you friends. When we come to the New Testament and the letters there, we find that Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, all refer to themselves as bondservants. They voluntarily take that status now, this is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. And with six million slaves in the Roman Empire, Paul didn't have to define this term to his readers. 
A slave was one who was bound to a master. A, a slave was one who belonged to someone else. A slave was one whose will was swallowed up in the will of his master. And Paul says, I have a master. I am his legal property, and I do his bidding. I am the bondservant of the living Christ. That's how he saw himself. That was his status. And then third, he mentions his calling. He says, called as an apostle. Paul was an apostle. That's the identification of his spiritual gift. That's why there's an unmistakable ring of authority in the writing of Paul. That's why he had such an extraordinary grasp of kingdom truth. Paul was an apostle. But I want you to notice how he got to be one. He didn't aspire to be one. He didn't campaign to be one. He didn't climb a ladder to be one. He says he was called by God. Whenever a young man spoke to Dr. Barnhouse about his interest in becoming a preacher, he used to say, don't do it if you can help it. If you can be satisfied as a banker, a judge, a professor, or any other calling, God hasn't called you into ministry. And what he was saying was, if God has really called you, you can't do anything else. If God has really called you, you will say with the Apostle Paul, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And the same is true on every level. It is essential for you to understand what God has called you to do. It is essential for you to understand what your spiritual gift is. You see, whatever your ministry may be, if it's vacation Bible school or Awana or youth or teaching Sunday school or greeting or outreach, God doesn't want you to see that as a chore. God wants you to see that as a calling. You show me somebody who does ministry as a chore, and I'll show you someone who does it half-heartedly, who needs a whole lot of positive strokes, and who won't probably be there for the long haul. But you show me somebody who does ministry as a calling, and I'll show you someone who does it wholeheartedly, who doesn't need a lot of positive strokes, and who will be there for the long haul. Fourth thing Paul tells us is his passion. The end of verse 1 says, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul had been a Pharisee. The word Pharisee literally means a separated one. Pharisees took extreme measures to set themselves apart from everyone and everything that might contaminate them. But now Paul says that he is set apart in a new way. You see, he's not simply set apart from something, he is set apart for something, the gospel of God. This was Paul's passion, and he gave up everything that got in its way. He was like an athlete who was training for the Olympics. They give up things in their schedule. They give up things in their diet. They give up distractions. Why? Because they have a passion. Paul's passion was spreading the message of Jesus Christ. It was the priority in his life. And he set himself apart from all other concerns in order to do it. Nothing else really mattered. You know, the problem with a lot of Christians is that they try to get set apart without having a passion. And I've run into a lot of Christians who end up narrow and cantankerous because they've been giving up things instead of getting Christ. When you have a passion, 
Forgetting Christ. Giving up things is easy. When I was a real little boy, I used to play house, play school, play jacks. I never really had to give up those things. You know, I didn't, I didn't come to a time in my life when, you said, when I said, you know, I'm a big boy now and big boys don't play jacks. So I need to make a real effort to give up jacks. See, that's not how it happened. How it happened was one day I'm sitting there playing jacks and the older boys come and say, you know, we could use a right fielder. Can you catch? And I said, yeah, I can catch. And so I went out and played as hard as I could to keep up with those older boys. And then after the ball game, we older boys walked by the little, little guys playing jacks and I never went back to that. You see, I had graduated. I had a new passion. And that's what Paul is saying. I have a passion for the gospel. And that passion sets me apart from everything else. So that's how Paul identifies himself. Name, Paul. Status, bond slave of Christ. Calling, apostle. Passion, nothing but the gospel. How would you identify yourself? Does your name say, I'm a new creature in Christ? Is your status a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Do you see your ministry as a calling from God? And is your passion that nothing else really matters but the gospel? You see, how you see yourself will determine how you live. And some of us need Granny Wendy to lean over to us and whisper, don't you know who you are? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. We're going to close the service today. They're going to lead us in that chorus, breathe. And as you sing this song today, I want you to analyze your passion. Because the words to this song say, this is the air I breathe. This is my daily bread. I'm desperate for you, Jesus. Let's stand and let him know that he is our passion today. And as we sing this morning, I'm going to invite you to come if you have a need, if you'd like to join this fellowship of believers or whatever you'd like to talk about that's on your heart today. You come as we sing together.